so I think we can get underway now. I can still see that there are, there are people joining in. But um, welcome uh, to everyone this morning. Uh, an interesting topic for our discussion, framing it as the green squeeze and how we can think of how to improve and advance new trade opportunities for the LDCs in the context of climate change. Um, so we've got a, a great panel today. We actually have a uh, recorded message from uh, Ambassador Kadra Hassan, who's the LDCO, LDC coordinator at WTO, who unfortunately wasn't able to join us at the last minute, um, but we'll be sharing that shortly. Um, we're going to start with uh, a scene setting from Jody Keane at, at ODI, who's been doing a lot of work on the impacts of the emerging green trade uh, agenda for LDCs. And then we've got um, Michael Roberts, the head of the Aid for Trade Development Division in the WTO. Uh, and again, he's going to be talking about the importance of aid for trade measures in, in enabling LDCs to meet these new green trade rules. Then uh, also uh, Ratnika Adhikari from the uh, EIF. Um, the EIF support for LDC capacity building has been going for a, a good number of years now, and they have a great number of successes in this space. So good lessons from them on what are the implications around low carbon development in the LDCs. Uh, and then we also have uh, Rolf Traeger, who's the chief of the LDC division in UNCTAD. So um, given we really want to have a good opportunity for questions and discussions and engagement, I'll get underway. But please, as we're going through, do put your Q&A into the Q&A box. And also, please do introduce yourself in the chat so we know who is with us. Jodie, over to you. Great, thank you very much, Laura. I'm going to start sharing my screen. So thanks everyone for joining us this morning. So I'm just gonna have a kind of scene setting presentation for you, um, just so that you can understand some of the work that we've been undertaking, um, which is looking at the kind of combined effects of a number of, of green trade um, measures that are being introduced now, um, some are underway already, as we know the carbon border adjustment mechanism is in its implementation phase now, um, others are about to start um, kind of January 2025. So I'm going to begin by just kind of defining what I mean by the green squeeze just introducing some of these new green trade measures and just talking about some of the views that we've heard about the potential to increased costs, compliance costs, and the potential risks of exclusion, especially within within the context of there being the kind of you know, not, not clear, it's not very clear on what the support, available support for adjustment to many of these new measures is. And I'm going to then zoom in and focus on some small, a small number of case studies, um, just to draw out some of those effects. And then I'm going to wrap up and just conclude, you know, we just have a few thoughts and reflections as to how we can potentially change um, some of the dynamics um, that we're seeing at, at, at the current time. So I just want to share with you this first slide, um, which is about this is this is a an advertising campaign um, from one retailer that you may or or may not know, um, but basically the retailer was advertising the fact that they are stopping uh, using air freight air freight produce, and it's presented almost as if this is a kind of natural um, evolution. Um, the retailer does um, specifically make reference to their commitment to the Paris Agreement um, and that their 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 choice to reduce um, air freight. Um, horticultural produce um, is is in line with this with the commitment to to support the Paris Agreement and this is even though 
this concept of food miles um, and, and the, the fact that air freighted produce, it may still be lower carbon than other sources of air, pro uh, other sources of horticultural products that has been shipped or whatever. So the, the fact that this air miles, food miles myth was debunked a long time ago, we can see it coming back. Um, and it, it's come back and it's kind of um, this time dressed up more in the spirit of, of um, supporting commitments to the Paris Agreement. And I think the broader point that I want to make here is that the private sector now is already they're actively shaping um, value chains and not, not all are being advertised as blatantly as this um, retailer has um, chosen to do. But we're kind of moving from away from models from this kind of just-in-time business model more to a just-in-case business model. And it's this just-in-case of adverse environmental impacts. You know, this is what we're seeing um, the, 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 the movement towards. And this is obviously um, deeply concerning um, for poorer countries that are plugged into um, high-value um, horticultural um, exports. Of course, the kind of broad Order framing for green trade measures um, is, is, you know, we've got a, a number of important public policy frameworks that have also been um, recently set out. Um, I'm just going to name a few of them. I'm quite conscious this list is, is, is not exhaustive. And we also have a number of others with regards to um, textiles. There are other measures for critical minerals. We have you know, huge investments um, in, in other green technologies as well. But some of the most prominent examples that have been arising through our conversations and our research include concerns about the impacts of the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive. Um, essentially, this will go beyond kind of country level assurances that the environment is being protected to instead demand that um, produce suppliers to the EU market prove that they are not damaging uh, the environment. And in addition, they're not causing um, human rights um, abuses as well. So it has this kind of extraterritorial application um, and there are concerns about the kind of burden of, of, of proof and, and how systems can be set up um, to enable producers to, to keep plugged in um, within high value chains. Um, destined to the EU. And we also have the deforestation regulation. This covers a, a wide number of, of products and commodities, probably some of which you've already consumed um, before coming to the, the, this meeting. So coffee, tea, and so on. Um, and this really requires quite sophisticated um, information, you know, to prove that the products have not been produced on, on land that has been uh, deforested. Um, and I think the cutoff date there is um, uh, 2020. Um, so this is, you know, these are there, there are very real concerns that some types of producers just may not have the compliance infrastructure in place in order to meet these new requirements and therefore they may be um, excluded um, from the EU market. Of course, the most prominent example of a green trade measure that everyone talks about are carbon border adjustment measures. Um, but our analysis suggests that it's probably for least developed countries in particular, it's these other types of measures, in particular the deforestation regulation, as well as the corporate sustainability due diligence directive that are more likely um, to have a kind of wider um, impact um, looking ahead over, over the, the, the coming few years. So as I say, we have spoken to different private sector representatives um, just as, as part of kind of working through specific product 
um, value chains. And I think the view generally is that these policies have tended to, they, they, they're seeming to come out in a kind of siloed um, approach. Um, so the, you know, one part of the commission is dealing with CBAM, another with deforestation. And even though there may be some overlap in terms of the, the data points, there are different, there are going to be different focal points to submit them. So it's all pretty complicated, pretty complex. And um, the private sector has been mentioning that, you know, it's probably more, more, more complicated than it than it needs to be. Um, one importer that we spoke to said that, you know, the, the costs of compliance are likely to be around one uh, million a, a year. And I think even if we look at, if we just take a kind of a percentage, you know, and assume that 1% of the total value of, of LDC exports are going to be um, you know, if we take that as a proxy for compliance cost, then we are really running into, you know, potential hundreds of, of millions um, of, of euros in terms of thinking about the additional costs that these measures uh, may, may put in place. And I don't want to just want to emphasize I'm not at all against green trade measures. I just want to situate this discussion within the context of the fact that we have, you know, not only a global goals like the Paris Agreement, but we also have a commitment to try to double the LDC share of global exports and there was a target in the sustainable development goals to achieve that by 2020 that wasn't met we're now reaching a period when we have a number of green trade measures that have the potential to increase costs potentially exclude producers so i think we need to be thinking really carefully about how these risks could be uh, mitigated so i just want to move on uh, to that now before i wrap up if we think about um, countries like um, Ethiopia, like Mozambique, like Bangladesh, we can already see um, that it tend it's it's already you know the, the 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 producers that are bearing the costs. We can already see that it tends to be like the the higher proportion of those costs are being borne by smaller and um, more. Uh, less resourceful uh, producers. So in the case of Bangladesh, there's been a great survey um, undertaken by the Centre for Policy Dialogue, which has shown that as a share of total investments made by firms, the smaller firms are making the, lar the, the larger share of those investments is going towards this compliance um, infrastructure compared to, to larger firms. Um, smaller firms also have you know, fewer um, compliance managers on site. So those risks of exclusion and um, because of the impacts of the corporate sustainability due diligence direction directive coming to, into play, these risks are, are, are really, really very real. In the case of Ethiopia, um, we're looking at the kind of broader economic effects over the whole economy um, for the deforestation regulation. And we can see that already um, there's likely to be um, significant effects on the economy and on the labor market. And it should be noted that Ethiopia already has a very significant um, trade deficit as well. And we are talking about, you know, when we're talking about least developed countries, we are talking about those countries that tend to be, you know, the most vulnerable to the physical effects of climate change. And I think Laura's uh, Institute, the IIED, has already put out research as well, which shows that um, the, the the kind of poorer poorer producers are already investing uh, to to adapt to the physical effects of climate change now as well. So Mozambique is the big example everyone talks about in relation to CBAM, but I just want to draw your attention to the fact that we should also be thinking about the impact of these other measures as well. So I think to wrap up, we really need smarter trade policy here, and we need to have more joined up thinking. We really need to meet the aid for trade. 
concrete targets that have been set. And there are some obvious synergies there. And so we have within the Doha Programme of Action, we have commitments to increase the share of aid for trade to LDCs, but we also have commitments there in relation to digital ICT and infrastructure. So there are natural kind of synergies there in terms of increasing transparency, increasing participation. But I think perhaps we also need to think about an extra layer of corporate due diligence just to make sure that we're not undermining kind of the resilience building of value chains that we know needs to happen by, by trade becoming more concentrated as a result of these, the, these, these new measures. So I think I'll wrap up there, Laura, and, and pass to the other participants to their, for their observations. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Dodia. And really good to sort of hear about some of the ways that some of these barriers and challenges could be overcome. So we're now going to move to a recorded message from um, Ambassador Hassan, who unfortunately wasn't able to, to join us at last minute, but uh, going to be outlining the perspectives of the LDCs regarding this sort of global green transition and I think sharing some priorities for increasing LDCs trade performance. So um, to my technical colleagues, can you please play the video now? Thank you. Good morning uh, to my fellow panelists and uh, our participants, and thank you, Jody, for providing a concise overview of the context of this important and timely conversation. I must begin by commending the Overseas Development Institute, ODI, on the timing of this event before we head into COP28 next week. As we engage in the upcoming global dialogue, we must be acutely aware of the challenges faced by the most vulnerable nations and work collectively to ensure a just and equitable transition. I would like to thank ODI team for this invitation. I'm delighted to share some views from an LDC perspective on this topic. And unfortunately, I, I was not able physically to join you today, but I, I really uh, wanted to share the LDC perspective um, um, despite uh, some last minute constraints. In recent years, the impact of climate crisis has been uh, felt in LDCs, particularly in the scarcity of water resources, the decline in agricultural productivity, and the increase in physical risks resulting from rising sea levels and climate hazards. In addition, global warming has made extreme weather events such um, as uh, heat waves, heat, sorry, heat waves, heavy precipitation, floods, droughts, and tropical cyclones more frequent and more intense. The climate crisis threatens human existence in many places on the planet. And I can really uh, testify to that because I'm coming from a region where drought and flooding are almost um, uh, are happening back to back. Uh, thus, the global green transition represents a monumental shift towards sustainability and environmental uh, responsibility. We, the LDCs, are aware of the need to adopt measures to combat climate change. However, these measures must be consistent with the principle of international environmental law, WTO rules, and other international and relevant instruments. Against this backdrop, I would therefore like to focus my intervention on three points. Perspective from LDC regarding the green transition and potential new trade barriers, views on best approaches to mitigate trade barriers that may arise during um, this transition, and priorities areas for increasing LDC's trade performance and capturing new market opportunities. 
Let me start with the first one. First of all, it's important to emphasize that LDCs are not responsible for the climate crisis. However, they are among the main victims of its harmful consequences. In the pursuit of sustainable development, we must not forget the negative economic and social impacts for LDCs. According to ANTAC's 2022 LDC report, uh, in 2019, and I'm glad to see Rolf, Rolf um, on the panel, the carbon footprint of an ordinary citizen in LDCs was at least eight times lower than in developed or other developing countries. Emissions per inhabitant of COD, CO2 sorry, uh, barely reaches 10% of the world average. However, during the period 2017-2021, the 46 LDCs experienced an, every, an average of 67 weather, climate, and hydro, hydrological hazards per year, which affected an average of 25 million people. In addition, UNCTAD's 2023 LDC report has revealed that in LDCs per capita, emissions have essentially remained flat since 1990 and were 1.5 tons of CO2 equivalent in 2021. Thus, LDCs are disproportionately affected by the climate crisis. It is important that measures be adopted, particularly after the COVID-19 pandemic, which the negative impact of uh, which are still being felt in LDCs. We noted with interest that discussions are underway at the WTO in several WTO bodies, and in particular in the Committee on Trade and Environment on certain unilateral measures arising such a, a carbon border adjustment mechanism of the EU, CBAM, regulation on deforestation and the European Directive on Due Diligence on Corporate Sustainability, as well as other trade policy measures such as securing critical minerals and the use of industrial subsidies. LDCs respect the right of WTO members to adopt environmental and trade measures in the interest of their inhabitants, provided that they are in compliance with environmental law and WTO rules. However, as we see from different reports, uh, and more and more reports, the above mentioned measures of the EU risk having negative consequences on the economies of LDCs. They could constitute barriers in terms of market access for LDCs to the European market. This risk compromise our quest for resilience by notably accentuating unemployment and poverty in many LDCs, which rely on their export to the European market. LDCs are already facing many trade barriers to access certain markets. Many of our exports generally include commodities, from extractive in industries such as fossil fuels, which represented around 18% of LDC export in 2021. Metals and minerals accounted for around 11% of their export for the same year. All these are listed in the EU regulation. The global share of LDCs in the international trade remains marginal with their total merchandise exports representing less than 1% of global exports. Further marginalization is a real risk. We note the EU, EU's attempt in the CTE and other for uh, to discuss um, and other forums uh, to discuss the measures and respond to questions. We encourage them to continue to do so, but also take mitigating steps on the impact on LDCs. 
I would like now to turn to the second uh, an, uh, aspect, which is, which is the views on best approaches to mitigate trade barriers that may arise during this transition. Natural resources represent 25% of the GDP in LDCs, almost twice as much as in other developing countries and five times as much as in developed countries. Risk linked to the green transition arise from a change in regulation, technological progress or a change in demand, which can significantly influence asset prices. A green transition can be achieved by focusing on the following four objectives. Raising productivity in natural resources sectors through investments that address key structural patterns of resource use, particularly of land, namely forests, wetland, and other natural habitats. Second, reducing natural resource dependence through the diversification of rural economies. Third, implementing targeted policies to improve rural economies. And fourth, increasing access to clean energy and promoting renewable energy and energy efficient technologies. LDCs do not have the financial and technological uh, capacities to adapt to the requirements of the green transition, knowing that adaptation is recognized in the Paris Agreement as a challenge. As such, we urge the EU and any other members introducing CBAM type measures to implement WTO special and differential treatment provision, as well as the principle of common but differentiated responsibility. We call on such members to take into account Articles 9.1 and uh, 9.4 of the Paris Agreement, which stipulates respectively, and I quote, developed country parties shall provide financial resources to assist developing country parties with respect to both mitigation and adaptation in continuation of their existing obligations under the Convention, end of, end of quote. And again, and I quote, the provision of scaled-up scaled financial resources should aim to achieve a balance between adaptation and mitigation, taking into account country-driven strategies and the priorities and needs of developing country parties, especially those that are particularly vulnerable, vulnerable to the adverse effect of climate change and have significant capacity constraints, such as the least developed countries and small island developing states, considering the need for public and grant based resources for adaptation, end of, end of quote. Furthermore, our partners should provide in line with the Doha Agenda for Action for LDCs 2022-2031 adopted this year. Technology transfer and financial resources to LDCs to help them adapt to green transition. In that regard, LDCs call for the operationalization of the loss and damage fund established at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt in 2022. Let me now turn to the third element about the priorities areas for increasing LDC's trade performance and capturing new market opportunities. The COVID-19 pandemic has had serious consequences for LDC trade. Overall, the value of merchandise exports for L from LDC's contracted by almost 12% compared to the decline of more than 7% recorded at the global level. LDC exports are still concentrated towards five main destination markets, including the European Union and the United States. We believe that to, that to make the economies of LDCs more resilient to shocks and better integrated into value chains, we should be assisted in equipping ourselves with the necessary infrastructure in energy, transport, roads, roads and ports. 
and technologies in accordance with the, uh, the, the Doha Agenda for Action to transform uh, the economic structure and strengthen the productive capacity of our economies. To do this, trade has a crucial role to play. To this end, we believe that LDCs need to increase their commercial performance and seize market opportunities in the following areas. The e-commerce is a fast-growing business sector. Its potential has grown at an exponential rate during the COVID-19 pandemic. LDCs hope to benefit from appropriate technological means to capture a percentage of the opportunities offered by this sector to stimulate their economic growth and promote their economic development. LDCs, uh, is, uh, the second sector is agriculture, including fisheries and cotton. LDCs benefit from comparative advantages linked to different factors. They are able to take advantage of these advantages to increase their commercial performance and seize new market opportunities within the framework of fair international competition. The third sector is the industry. It is important to have an efficient industrial fabric to stimulate structural transformation, the strengthening of productive capacity and the diversification of the economy in LDCs with the aim of increasing the commercial performance of LDCs and seizing new market opportunities offered by the manufacture of photovoltaic panels, wind uh, turbines, etc. LDCs also have plenty of genetic resources to product pro, to produce sorry medical and cosmetic uh, product products including medicines also investment and assistance should be made to encourage ldc homegrown climate friendly products many ldcs have used organic and traditional manufacture of products uh, manufacturing of products that are more climate friendly than similar products manufactured in industrialized countries this would make it possible to reverse the trend character characterized in particular by the export of raw materials. Finally, the, the other sector of the services um, sector constitute more than 50% um, of the GDP of the majority of LDCs. The share of LDCs in world, in world, world merchandise pr uh, trade was 1.0%. 1% in 2020 compared to 1.06% in 2011. The waiver on LDC services and service suppliers provides guidance to increase the trade performance of LDCs and enable them to seize new market opportunities. We as a group are working on ways to make the notification of preferences effective. LDCs are ready to take advantage of the many green opportunities, particularly where LDCs can leapfrog legacy infrastructure and technologies. This indeed requires significant upfront investments with a view of supporting green transition with capital capacity building and green technology transfers. And um, we, maybe we would. We I hope we will have the time and other panelists uh, who are uh, who have worked on this uh, specific example can maybe give uh, some insight. But we we already have some examples um, of LDCs embarking on such a journey uh, already. 
Uh, the Gambia is uh, implementing uh, successfully a project with a recent analytical work done by ODI uh, in collaboration with EIF. And we also uh, um, know that uh, there is a e-waste policy uh, in Rwanda. They are all already uh, important um, uh, projects and policies uh, that are put in place. And we, I'm sure that we have some, uh, we will have many other examples if we have the appropriate uh, um, funding investments um, in green uh, opportunities in LDCs. In conclusion, the global green transition presents significant challenges for LDCs, as we um, heard it today. But the, uh, the green transition also provides opportunities. However, in order to harness the opportunities, we need to ensure there is both adequate access to finance and consideration of LDCs in policy. When policies globally or in individual markets are being developed, the specific needs of LDCs should be considered uh, upfront. This is important both to minimize negative economic disruptions as well as to actively develop positive incentives. This way, we all move forward together towards a more sustainable world and we will, we will ensure by uh, such uh, steps to not have LDCs in a position of catching up over, 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 over again. Thank you for your attention. It's great to have that input. Unfortunately, the ambassador, as I said, couldn't join us in person, but I think um, her words outlined both the, the, the challenges that the LDCs face and to see trade actually going backwards um, in, in recent years really is a challenge. But then talking about some of the opportunities and some of the ways that those barriers might be overcome. And I think our next three speakers will, will start to address some of those issues. So, Michael, I'd like to, to come to you now um, and, and ask you particularly about the importance of aid for trade um, in helping LDCs to meet some of these new trade measures and to improve the performance of their trade, as the ambassador was referring to. And also, if there's you know, something you can say about the role of the WTO in, in facilitating discussions between members around an inclusive green transition. Thank you, Michael. Over to you. Thanks very much, Laura. And thanks to ODI um, for the invitation to speak today. And uh, uh, congratulations, Jody, on that, uh, that presentation. What I wanted to do is uh, to pick up the points that you mentioned, but also I think to give a, a little bit of, a, uh, of an overview of the landscape of trade and environment measures. Um, what is it that, uh, that LDCs and other members need to comply with? Um, what kinds of measures, who's taking them, et cetera. And then uh, to pick up your point about uh, age trade and what's being done um, on trade and environment, and then finish off with some thoughts on how to help LDCs uh, realize these trade opportunities. And Ambassador Kadra has already given some uh, some suggestions in that in that in that in that direction. So let's um, quickly uh, give an overview of the landscape of of green measures. And apologies. Um, the, we were just we've just been updating the numbers in our environment database, so uh, I will be able to circulate a uh, PowerPoint that uh, gives you um, some uh, these these numbers afterwards, so that uh, in case you you don't manage to jot them all down. Um, first of all, let's look at the number of measures that are being taken. 
So these are the, and what I'm basing this on is the notifications that are being made to the WTO and that are reported in this environmental database. So if you go back to 1997, it was about 8% of all notifications. That's about 165 notifications in any one year. And a notification is made by um, made by a WTO member when they're introducing a new measure that's likely to have a substantial impact on trade. Okay, So these are environment-related measures that are going to have an impact on trade. By 2021, fast forward, fast forward there, you can see that the num the percentage of notifications and also the number has grown. So now environment-related notifications are about close to 20% of all the notifications that we receive. And more importantly, the number has grown substantially. So that's we're up around 930 uh, notifications, which is a more than five-fold increase since 1997. And any one notification can include more than one measure. So if you look at that number of 931 uh, notifications, it actually uh, it actually captures more than 2,000 environment-related measures. Okay, so which members are taking those measures? Um, so what I'll look at here is the kind of the stock of measures, the uh, stock of notifications over the period 2009 to 2022. And you'll see some familiar names there, some names that you'd perhaps expect, and some others that might be a bit more of a surprise. So coming out number one with more a little over a thousand notifications is the European Union. The second place, um, you've got uh, the US with uh, 924 notifications. Brazil comes in third with 430. China um, in fourth place with 369. And here's where the surprises start. Um, there are actually two least developed countries that um, come in in fifth and sixth place. And these are Rwanda and Uganda um, with 318 and um, uh, 238 um, notifications respectively. If you look at, so there's some other LDCs that also appear when you look at um, individual years. Um, so there in 2018, uh, Cambodia ranked in the top 10 of, of members notifying measures. And we also have Tanzania, um, which uh, came out in uh, both in, uh, in, in, in a couple of years as well is in that top 10 of, uh, of uh, notifying measures. Um, so, and if you allow me just to make a sort of a couple of additional uh, comments there in terms of uh, who's notifying the measures. You can see that in 2019, the top 10 notifying members accounted for 70% of all the notifications. Okay, so it was quite concentrated. If you look at 2022, that number drops to 54%. Okay, so what you can see is that these notifications are becoming more widespread. Um, and then I think also maybe the sort of the final statistic to give is that in 2021, there were 116 WTO members, that's 70% of our membership, who notified at least one climate-related environment measure. So you can see that there's two clear trends here. One is that there's an increasing number of environment measures that are being enacted and an ever more diverse range of members that are taking these measures at, and also at all levels of income. So um, 
what types of measures are being taken? This is important, I think, to look at. Um, and again, if you're looking at that same period, 2009 to 2022, technical regulations and specifications and conformity assessment procedures together, they count, they count for about 45% of um, those measures. And then you've got um, other trade measures like import licensing and bans and prohibitions um, that count for a further 8%. That's one block in terms of sort of compliance. And then you've got another block of measures which deal with subsidies. So here um, you've got grants and direct payments, tax concessions and non-monetary support, which um, to total up to more than 30% of those measures that are being, uh, are being taken. So you can see here there's a compliance burden, but then there's also this this subsidy side of things, which I think also picks up on uh, Dr. Uh, on Ambassador Kadra's point about um, the uh, the wherewithal of actually uh, integrating into these uh, into these uh, green value chains. The sectors that are affected by these measures, agriculture comes out top with close to a third of all measures affecting um, the agriculture sector, manufacturing, chemicals. Energy sector again, you wouldn't be surprised to, to hear those in in the um, in the list of sectors affected. And then, what are the environmental objectives that are being pursued? Um, what do these things? What do these measures cover? Um, the largest number cover the management of chemicals, toxins, and hazardous substances. Um, and then um, compliance with multilateral environmental agreement measures, animal, animal protection, waste management and recycling. So um, there you can see that there's a very diverse range of measures. There's a diverse range of uh, agreements with a particular focus there on technical uh, standards and on subsidies and an increasing number of members, an ever more diverse range of members who are actually taking these measures. So that, that um, so if you're thinking about this in terms of a squeeze, it's not just um, one or two key trading partners that are taking these measures, it's the WTO membership, I think in, in, a, very, in a very large segment of the WTO membership. And I think also one conclusion there to reach is that this is only likely to grow the compliance burden. So the squeeze might get even tighter. What is WTO um, doing? Um, so there obviously um, there's work going on in our Committee on Trade and Environment and also a whole range of other WTO committees, including those that deal with um, the, uh, the topics that I mentioned about, the mentioned um, those notifications. So we talk about the Committee on uh, Technical Barriers to Trade, Import Licensing, and other things as well. And here, one, um, one avenue which is open to any WTO member is to raise a specific trade concern when they feel that either um, the measures that are being taken are arbitrary or unjustified, um, or severely impact their, their, their exports. Um, and so here, um, if you look at uh, the number of specific trade concerns that have been reported in one of those committees, the technical barriers to trade, there's more than uh, more than 100 
uh, trade specific trade concerns covering environment measures that cover close to five billion dollars worth of of of, of trade. Um, time is moving on, so perhaps let me come back to some of the other areas where we we where groups of members are looking to. Uh, advanced work on trade and environment through the informal dialogue on plastics or fossil fuel reform or trade and environment structured discussions. And let me um, then sort of uh, look to what Aid for Trade is doing on this. Um, so what we can say is that um, in terms of those disbursements uh, that are going out on Aid for Trade, they reached an all-time high of um, 50 billion, uh, just a little bit more than $50 billion in 2020. Pandemic knocked this back to 47.7 billion in 2021. Um, but already in 20 in, in 2021, um, the about close to 40% of um aid for trade commitments, so that's future expenditure, um, had a climate objective. Um, so you can see that um the that work on mainstreaming. Environment and and climate into aid for trade is already going on, um, and if you look at the period two thousand eleven to twenty twenty one, about thirty percent of all aid for trade commitments had a climate objective re related to the energy sector. So here we're talking about climate mitigation, um, where I think there's a little bit of more of a difficulty in picking up here about uh, Ambassador Kadra's uh, point is. On the climate adaptation, um, the the types of programs that um, are being undertaken, I think they sort of fall into three main buckets. One is promoting transparency and information about the environmental measures. So, if going into further granular detail about what I was talking about in terms of those measures that are being taken. Um, then another one is obviously supporting compliance with those measures, and there. Um, you'll hear some examples, I think, from um, from Ratnika who speak after me about what the EIF is doing there. To that, you can you can add actions that are being taken by bilateral and multilateral donors um, that perhaps uh, a little bit too granular to go into this in in in, in at this particular moment. And obviously, more generally, supporting the climate transition. And so here, there's this. Um, uh, increasing amount of development of finance which is obviously going towards climate um, objectives one example there would be the just energy transition partnership that's been signed with senegal um that's worth some two 2.7 billion dollars um and which is obviously going to go into the area of upgrading um energy uh and uh energy access and energy provision will have an impact on on uh, competitiveness, uh, both at an economic level and also at a, at, a, at a trade level. So there's that increasing amount of finance that's out there, and a lot of that will uh, be captured within what we're counting in Overtrade. So let me just conclude with some ideas on how we can help um, LDCs realize these new trade opportunities. Um, it's, I think it's, it's, it's crystal clear that this squeeze is, is, is only going to become tighter. The volume of environment measures is going to grow. And um, obviously the climate emergency and also I think um, LDC's own 
nationally determined contributions will push that, that growth in those measures, as well as obviously what other members are doing there. And that will affect LDC's export diversification efforts, both at a product and also at a market level. So there, um, it's critical, I think, that we continue to provide this information on the measures that are out there, the measures that are coming into, into place, support compliance, and also continue to provide that finance for um, the climate transition. And I think more generally in this, it picks up, the, this is the final point that I'd like to make, Laura, is that I think there's an urgent need for policy support to understand where LDCs and other developing countries are going to find their comparative advantage in the low or no carbon uh, economy of the future. So with that, let me thank you again for the invitation to speak and uh, I conclude there. Thank you, Laura. Great, thanks, Michael. I mean, really good to hear detail uh, of how these um, uh, green measures are emerging and really interesting to hear that the LDCs themselves are um, you know, making quite significant notifications on them. Um, I think there is you, you know, to sort of um, transition from what you were saying about the, the, the opportunities that there are for LDCs. Um, it, it's great to hand over to you now, Ratnika, to talk about um, the role of the EIF uh, in supporting LDCs um, to take advantage of these opportunities, but also how they can mainstream trade into their, their NDCs. So it's it's working both ways, both at trade from the climate angle and climate from the trade angle. So uh, looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you. I think you're still on mute. It's just, uh, this is something that I always forget to do. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Laura. Um, for that kind introduction about the EIF. And um, also, I would like to th join uh, Michael and Ambassador Hassan in thanking ODI for providing this opportunity. So after Jody, Ambassador Hassan and Michael have spoken, you know, I just want to utilize my time, limited time available, to just discuss two things. I, one is the, is the kind of support that EIF <clears throat> has provided for LDC capacity building uh, to mainstream trade into uh, nationally determined contributions, NDCs, and, and what could potentially be done. <clears throat> the second one relates to the role of aid for trade to contribute to low carbon development in LDCs. Uh, so let me start with mainstreaming first. Mainstreaming trade into national, um, nationally determined uh, contributions or even uh, NAPA for that matter, uh, for that matter is aid to gain currency in LDCs due to various reasons, including, you know, the silo culture, the lack of appreciation of environment related trade barriers. Now these are coming to light and many of the LDCs uh, may not even be aware of the kind of environment related trade barriers that exist. And finally, they may not be aware of the opportunities available. So these are various reasons why there's a limited mainstreaming. So as a part of our initiative within the EIF, what we are doing as we speak is that is to conduct a study on greening the DTIS. Diagnostic trade integration studies, for those of you who do not know, is the kind of a foundational document that we support in LDCs to identify the opportunity as well as challenges um, of trade integration for LDCs. So the DTIS 
already there was a provision uh, within the guideline that we issued in 2016 to include environment related aspects within the analytical work of diagnostic trait integration study but um, but you know many countries have done so but many have not done so right so therefore this the greening the DTIS study is a stock taking exercise and this would also provide step by step guideline on how to mainstream trade in other policies such as uh, the uh, agriculture policy as well as uh, gender policy um, information technology policy as well as the nationally determined contribution so that could be uh, a good starting point i also want to highlight the fact that um, a new version of dti is such as the one in jambia that has been recently finalized has a separate chapter focusing on trade uh, trade and climate change and that also highlights the need to mainstream trade in uh, NDCs. So that could be another example. A concrete example of our support is something that we provided to Gambia, and Ambassador Hassan also mentioned this, uh, is to enhance coordination and mainstreaming, where we not only brought the Ministry of Trade and Ministry of Environment to work together to ensure better coordination, as well as reciprocal mainstreaming, the reason I'm saying reciprocal mainstreaming is that as much as it is important to mainstream trade in the NDCs, it is also important to, <clears throat> to mainstream climate change in the trade policy of, uh, of, the, of the government. So therefore, we have to talk about not only mainstreaming one way, but kind of reciprocal mainstreaming um, here. And we also supported the development of Green Recovery Focused National Development Plan which was rolled out in 2022 in, in the Gambia, which is likely to pave the way for mainstreaming trade into uh, nationally determined contribution NDCs. Now my next point that I want to highlight is the role of aid for trade in, in, in LDCs. Uh, the, the first point within this I want to mention is that we can provide as EIF, and we have done so in the past, direct support to project contributing to uh, low carbon transition or net zero ambitions. Um, I just want to provide an example of the support that we provided to the establishment for the establishment of electronic single window. And we call it paperless trade as well in Vanuatu. For obvious reason, the electronic single window uh, system uh, initiative launched in 2016 by the government and they, then you know in 2019 we provided additional support uh, together with other like-minded partners such as Australia and by 2021 it helped reduce processing time for the issuance of biosecurity certificates from four days to six days it used to take between four and six days, now it has come down to 10 minutes, as little as 10 minutes, which has contributed to reduce paperwork and number of trips, resulting in reduction in almost 6,000 uh, 6, tons equivalent of CO2 in 2021. And this has resulted in Vanuatu being listed as the number one, um, uh, the seeds country in Asia Pacific uh, to on, on sustainable uh, trade <clears throat> index prepared by UNSCAP. 
Uh, and, and this was a very impressive success. And therefore, the Vanuatu Department of Custom and Inland Revenue also reported an impressive increase in, in revenue collection from around $33 million in 2016 to a current value of $134 million since the implementation of the single window. And impressed with the success of the initiative, Vanuatu's parliament recently approved a budget for the next phase of the project. The second one is uh, to contribute to investment promotion and retention in LDCs to help mitigation. We know for a fact that bulk of the resources that are going to come for low-carbon transition in many of the LDCs will have to come from the private sector. <laughs> so realizing this need and also the need for some of the uh, LDCs which are graduating to provide them necessary support to mobilize private investment, particularly foreign direct investment, we are working closely with World Association of Investment Promotion Agency, UNCTAD, and many other um, international organizations to support LDCs to improve their investment climate and enhance their investment promotion and retention capacity. The project led by UNCTAD, uh, and there are two separate projects that we are supporting. The project led by UNCTAD is particularly important as that is about building capacity of LDCs to attract investment in sustainable development sectors, including in areas such as clean energy development. The third support that we have provided and which seems to be working is the project preparation grant. So as a part of the support, overall support that we provided to Gambia, again, bringing this example of the Gambia, uh, we have provided a catalytic support for them to prepare uh, um, our project preparation support for them to develop project, a bankable project that could be submitted for financing uh, for which they have uh, they are approaching Green Climate Fund. And they have also engaged African Development uh, Bank as the accredited entity for the project. And this is a project, this project is, um, is titled the Gambia Industrial Transformation through a special economic zone and agropoles project. And it is aligned with the government's new green recovery focused national development plan. Uh, and then the total amount of project, uh, it's actually the, uh, the grant element is $55 million and the loan element is $80 million. Uh, and it's a combination of both mitigation and adaptation project. And there are total 68,500 direct beneficiaries and 102,750 indirect beneficiaries. The project is yet to be finalized and submitted. And once it is finalized and submitted, this would be a, a very good case study on how uh, the project preparation grant could help. And fourth is to provide seed money or catalytic support for mobilizing both private and public funds, including blended finance. This is an area of work where we would like to, uh, to, to work in the future. But I can provide one small example. For example, in a, in a country like Bhutan, which is an LDC, uh, and it's, it happens to be a carbon negative economy to export green products. Uh, how do we support them? I mean, it's not that we would help them to really manufacture green products because they are already doing. What we can do is to provide soft support in the form of uh, developing policy, providing certification, testing facilities, certification, helping in accreditation, and eventually collecting them to the market. These are the kind of initiative that we could you know, support in the future. So with this, I want to stop here and would be happy to take any questions. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Ratnika. I mean, really good to hear those project examples. And that, that one from Vanuatu really struck me. Um, you, know, you wouldn't immediately think that a trade facilitation project could have such big impacts on, on CO2 emissions, but that, that's really a significant amount. Um, before we move to our Q&A, we've got our, our, our final speaker, uh, Rolf Traeger from, from UNCTAD. And, and, and Rolf, we, we've been hearing a lot about um, the approaches to um, help LDCs uh, address this uh, green squeeze. Um, but I know UNCTAD has been doing some analysis on the potential effects of CPAM and other measures on LDC competitive. So it would be good to hear um, from you on that. And then some of the recommendations that you've been working on, on integrating LDCs into green value chains. Thank you. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Laura, and thanks to ODI for uh, inviting us and Ankta to participate in this uh, very interesting uh, and important event preceding, of course, uh, COP28. So I'll start uh, to by sharing some of the main uh, results of the study that we did. We did uh, in a very detailed study on the potential effects of uh, CBAM. Uh, on uh, the general economic performance of LDCs, both in terms of trade uh, performance, but also in terms of overall uh, economic uh, performance. Uh, uh, once uh, these, uh, the scheme is uh, implemented, which is going to happen actually in the very near future. So, uh, and we did a, a very detailed analysis based on bilateral uh, bilateral trade data, not just of LDCs with the EU countries, but also with third uh, parties, uh, etc. And uh, of course, uh, what uh, uh, this analysis started from the patterns of uh, LDC trade, and uh, the fact is. Uh, that uh, LDC's exports contain, uh, consist mainly of carbon-intensive commodities like fuels, minerals, and metals. So these are the types of products uh, which are most likely to be targeted by any type of environmental measures, PBAM or otherwise. But also, they, since uh, LDCs are mainly commodity exporters, they are also major providers of raw materials to many carbon intensive industries like steel, electricity, cement, etc., which again are the industries directly targeted by the CBAM scheme, but also by other similar schemes which are being discussed, like the US's uh, similar scheme, which is still uh, under discussion. And uh, what, uh, what uh, can this potential lead to? Well, first of all, this, of course, uh, is a type of uh, unilateral type of policy and uh, which uh, has uh, the objective of working towards great environmental sustainability and combating climate change. But the problem is that these rules, they are done all over the world. They are imposed across the board. And therefore, they do not take into account uh, the specificities of uh, LDCs. 
while uh, the rules uh, were being discussed, there was talk about exempting the LDCs from application of CBAM rules. But this uh, ended up not being the case eventually in the final version, which was uh, announced more recently. But our study shows that even if LDCs were to be exempted, directly exempted from compliance with the CBAM rules, still they would be negatively affected due to the quite complex forms in which they are integrated with other countries, of course, not just uh, you, but with other countries. And uh, the fact that uh, these policies, they have effects not just on final products, but also on intermediate products. And this is something that our study focused a lot uh, which is the potential impact on uh, of uh, the scheme on intermediate product trade. Because uh, these intermediate products, they are very important for, of course, by definition, for the production of other products, but also uh, for the industrialization pros, uh, prospects of LDCs. And uh, of course, one of the possible uh, negative uh, effects of uh, of such a scheme is the case in which uh, you have carbon leakage and so uh, you might have actually an intensification of carbon emission in LDCs. As, uh, as Ambassador Hassan mentioned, uh, we have uh, as part of the LDC report 2022 in which we did the study, we also did another study uh, of um, of the carbon intensity of LDC economies, of emissions, et cetera, et cetera, in which we show that uh, actually the per capita emission, but also per product emission in LDCs is much lower than, uh, than in other countries. So, I mean, if carbon leakage uh, occurs, this would run counter, I mean, might uh, help industrialization, but would uh, run counter to environmental uh, uh, objectives. And here we have also noticed that LDCs, they have not shut away from their environmental responsibilities. And an analysis of their NDCs shows that they have fully committed towards achieving uh, net zero, uh, low carbon, etc., etc. And so, um, of course, uh, the threat, given these structural characteristics, the main threat uh, of CBAM is a threat to LDC export competitiveness, uh, a threat to the uh, GDP performance, of course. Uh, but also, uh, in the longer term, there may be a threat to the structural transformation of LDCs themselves, because it might uh, jeopardize their industrialization, uh, but to the extent that uh, these existing international measures can discourage investors in LDCs, important uh, industries like in the like manufacturing, steel, cement, etc. All of these are sectors which are indispensable for the process of structural transformation and industrialization of uh, LDCs. Uh, and of course, this is uh, the case of uh, CBAM, but also when you look at the EU deforestation regulation, which as Jody mentioned, may have uh, even stronger impact on uh, LDCs. Uh, of course, uh, if you just look at the uh, 
at the list of products which are contemplated by this uh, deforestation regulation, many of them are among uh, the major agricultural exports of LDCs. That's the case of cocoa, coffee, wood, rubber, leather, and leather products, which uh, means that, again, uh, you, you have another source, but a very direct source of squeeze. And why is this the case? Well, because, again, these uh, regulations, uh, they, are, uh, they are enacted and they are designed taking into account worldwide conditions that they do, of course, not take into account the institutional and productive and legal capacities of LDCs. And they are due diligence reporting, traceability requirements. They are extremely uh, stringent. So the question is, how are LDC producers uh, supposed to comply with them? It's extremely difficult for them, given their, again, their technological, financial, institutional capacities, etc. So, uh, of course, the specificities of LDCs have not been taken into account. So the consequence uh, of this, uh, of the enactment of these uh, regulations is that this will very largely favor larger producers, which do have the capacities to comply with these uh, regulations and these requirements to the detriment of small-scale producers. And we know that uh, the bulk of agricultural production in LDCs is undertaken by uh, small-scale producers. So this uh, can potentially bring uh, very serious, not just economic problems, but also social problems. Now, so these are the, the effects uh, of, of these, the immediate effects of these, uh, of these uh, green policies on uh, economic and export uh, prospects of LDCs. So what can be do, uh, done uh, about this, uh, about this evolving uh, environment? And uh, as was uh, mentioned by our colleague from the WTO, we know that environmental uh, regulations are being uh, enhanced, not just by developed countries, but in developing countries uh, themselves. So, and here I'd like to focus on, uh, on uh, uh, one particular type of uh, potential, which is the, the growing quest for uh, critical minerals uh, in view of the energy transition, the green transition, etc. There has been a lot of talk about this uh, recently, and of course, in terms of lithium, but of course, it does not just concern lithium, it also concerns um, cobalt and a much more traditional type of metal exports of LDCs, which is quite simply copper. Okay, and there has been uh, uh, quite a lot of uh, talk about the, the need to secure supplies of this, etc. But the developmental aspects of it have been paid relatively less attention, unfortunately. So the fact is that there's a new scramble for resources that uh, is happening on a worldwide scale. It risks uh, reproducing the extractivist patterns into uh, in which uh, many of these countries and including LDCs have been operating in the past. We know that uh, metal extraction of copper and other metals have been going on for decades and decades, and this has not been necessarily uh, led to very bright development outcomes in those mining uh, LDCs. 
So there's uh, a lot of uh, talk uh, about the governance and value addition. And I think that in terms of the governance of uh, natural resources and particularly of the mining industry, there's a lot of work that the international uh, community can and should do in order to support uh, uh, capacity building in LDCs, institutional building, particularly in terms of managing uh, uh, the natural resources, in terms of mining legislation, in terms of uh, uh, of uh, negotiations with international investors, all of this, of course, aiming at a better capture, but also management of natural resource rents. So can this be a leverage for future development? Yes, it can, provided these rents are properly captured, but also properly managed and used for further diversification of the economy. So this is uh, very important. And in terms of value addition, there is, again, uh, there is, uh, there, starts, uh, there start being new calls for greater value addition, exactly in order to avoid the, the past patterns of extractivism, which many of the mining countries or mineral countries, uh, including LDCs, uh, have followed. And this is obviously a major objective. And the, what uh, we are seeing is that, uh, for instance, you have the example of this uh, common uh, uh, product and project, which is being um, uh, planned and uh, implemented between the Democratic Republic of uh, the Congo and Zambia for the joint exploitation of these uh, mineral uh, resources, but not just exploitation, uh, also in terms of uh, adding value, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, these are very promising uh, um, uh, way of looking at it, particularly since these initiatives come from national authorities uh, themselves. And um, this is very promising, but of course it has uh, to face major obstacles, which are the flanking uh, um, capacities in terms of infrastructure, in terms of skills, etc., etc. And here I'd just like to finish by recalling that uh, linkages and diversification, they do not only go downstream, where you find many of these difficulties, but also upstream. And here, I think that LDCs can mirror themselves in the example of several Latin American countries, like Chile, Peru, etc., where they have focused a lot on upstream linkages of the mining sector in terms of a provision of inputs, of machinery, etc., etc., to the mining industry. There's a lot of developmental impact, linkage impact, and of course, everything that goes with it, value creation, employment creation, diversification, etc. There's a lot of potential also in the upstream. So I'd like to finish by saying yes, downstream is very important. And particularly in the case of lithium and otherwise, I think the preliminary studies have shown that the first step of processing is not so difficult to achieve that in terms of cobalt, in terms of lithium, etc, etc. But going all the way there, 
down to uh, lithium ion batteries, it's a much bigger leap. So I mean, the first step, it should be aimed for uh, immediately, but uh, in terms of uh, this should be a first step. And then the next step, of course, would be to go for higher levels of value addition. And finally, also look at the backstream linkages, upstream rather linkages. Thank you very much. Sorry, hopefully you can hear me. Um, um, I think, yes, I'm back online now. Um, yes, thank you very much, Rob. Really interesting to hear those perspectives on the so-called transition minerals. And I think that that's an area where um, trying to avoid the oil curse and the, the challenges of fossil fuels contributing to development, that there is potentially um, lessons to be learned around how some of these new transition minerals are, are developed. I was at, at a meeting in Geneva a couple of weeks ago talking about some of those issues, so they're clearly very pertinent. And um, it's great that um, uh, the ambassador, Ambassador Hassan, really great that you've been able to join us for the, the, the Q&A session at the end. Welcome, very uh, nice to have you with us. And thank you very much for your recorded remarks. They were, were very interesting and help, helped form the discussion so far. So we have now got about um, 10 minutes for um, questions. Um, we've got a couple already coming into um, the chat. I think around the sort of the, the, the controversies here around what the challenges are, but what are the opportunities are and, and how this is sort of framed. So we've got one from, from Simon Maxwell. And I won't read it out exactly, Simon, but to, to sort of summarise it, highlighting should we be talking about the, the sort of the opportunities and the green imperative, or should we also be focusing on the challenges that, that many LDCs face in, in addressing these issues? Um, I'm wondering who to perhaps um, point this to first, or sort of, you know, if anybody would like to, to, to jump in. Is there anybody who'd like to take that, or shall I suggest somebody to have a go at it? Laura, I'd be happy to take a first first go at it, and then if others want to come in and add. Um, so the the I think that, but in addition to the question, there's been a lively discussion in the chat uh, as well about whether we should be talking about an imperative or a squeeze. So let me try and sort of, if if you allow me, kind of reconcile the two things. Um, I think there's uh, obviously the 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 approach at um, on environmental measures at in the trade sense doesn't ex doesn't exist in isolation. It takes account of broader um, uh, commitments, multilateral uh, environmental agreements, Paris uh, um, Paris Declaration, nationally determined contributions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's 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 a there is that recognition that there is an imperative here, and I think um, there's uh, and that would be shared by all WTO members that recognition of the imperative. The question then is about the measures themselves. So do those measures are they enacted to meet that objective, and then are they being um, enacted in such a way that um, they are um, complying with that chapeau text in Article 20 on the general exemptions in as much as are they being applied in an arbitrary or unjustified way between countries? 
um, as a disguised restriction in uh, on trade? Are they more onerous than uh, is necessary to meet the legitimate objectives that are being uh, that that members are seeking to attain? So there's the I think whilst um, members will recognize the legitimacy of taking those measures, they, what they're going to argue over is the detail of them, and particularly when it affects their imports. And there clearly, um, there's also, as uh, the ambassador was uh, was mentioning, there's also a, a long uh, discussion within the WTO about how to take the special needs of particularly the least developed countries into account. So that I think is where you we can we can sort of um, try and reconcile these two these two ideas of the of the imperative and also the the exemption. Um, if you allow me, um, just to also to to commend um, Ralph Traeger and uh, the work that Ungtad have done in that least developed countries report. Um, and highlight, I think, also that what he was talking about in terms of adding value there to, to minerals, that I think really speaks to the core of what we've been trying to do for some time with the AFA trade work. So if you think about this, um, trying to move down the value chain just beyond extraction, to be able to do that, you're going. You open, as Rolf was saying, you open up into a suite of broader economic and trade reforms in such areas as services, trade facilitation, trade finance, investment facilitation. All of these things that um, you know the A for Trade is there and meant to try and support. So there's a sort of a, again we come back to that agenda around. Um, adding value, export diversification, also in it, and in a sense, it becomes even more of an imperative in as we move into the to that climate transition. So, hopefully, I've got the ball rolling for you, Laura. No, thank you, Mike. I think that 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 was a really good way of trying to, of reconciling those, and I think this this broader point about value addition uh, as well. Um, it feels that 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 LDCs are still um, very much. Um, producing raw materials that continue to be exported, and Ambassador Hassan, you mentioned that in your your, your comments as well. Um, some of the other questions are, have been responded to in the the chat, but there is one that I think is quite quite interesting, and perhaps Nick, I, I I could ask you to to give a view on this. We've been hearing about small scale producers and, and costs of compliance. Um, what might be some of the ways to address that? Um, one suggestion um, uh, in the chat is that um, it's around potential consolidation of exporters. Is there experience from uh, EIF uh, projects and initiatives around helping particularly smaller producers around cost of compliance? You're on mute. Laura, Laura, I couldn't hear the last bit when you when you mentioned when you were speaking about this. Can you repeat Sorry. that, please? Right. If there are any examples from um, from the EIF around supporting particularly smaller producers around the cost of compliance, doesn't necessarily need to be environmental measures, but the cost of compliance generally. How do we address that aspect of the of, of greener trade measures? Right. Um, okay. Uh, see what what we've done is uh, in terms of cost of compliance, our program actually supports the creation of public goods, you know, such as the one in um, 
such as the one in Guinea or um, or or in or, or in Senegal, right? So what we've done is to support them in the um, in the creation of uh, establishment of labs, which actually helps them in the in the in, in supporting the uh, certification and accreditation system. So that's one example, right? That I can provide. The other example that we can provide is the example of my own country, Nepal, where we've supported small farmers and small producers of tea to get their traceability requirement fulfilled. And how do they fulfill their traceability requirement? Through the use of technology. And this is the kind of technology, including the blockchain technology that could help them to sort of, you know, uh, enhance the traceability of their products so that, you know, the buyers are fully aware of, you know, where the the product was, uh, you know, where the where, where the where the farming was done, and how the process, all the way from farm to, uh, to the to the to the kitchen, you know, I mean, not farm to the fork because it's a it's a product, it's tea. So therefore, that's uh, that's another example of the support that we have provided, and we've actually um, brought together a cooperative of farmers. Who are, and a smaller scale producers, and they work together with a with a municipality uh, in a, in a place called uh, Ilami in eastern Nepal, and they are working together with these farmers to uh, to enhance traceability. And the Nepal Tea and Coffee Development Board is the implementing partner together with the um, with the Ministry of Commerce. So that I can provide as a um, as a as a concrete example. Other than that. You know, of course, developing a system that would enable uh, these small uh, producers to get access to the facility would be already a good example. In some cases, what happens with the um, with the kind of standards that need to be met is that, um, I mean, it's not uh, for the uh, international trade, but in in terms of the regional trade arrangement that we have, and Nepal actually exports a lot of products to India. And some of the certifications um, and, and compliance in order to ensure that the the producer will have to go to the certification sort of uh, installation in 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 New Delhi or in Kolkata those places and those can the requirement can be met only by the producers with capacity to pay right and a small small a small scale producers cannot do that. So these kind of uh, facilities, uh, labs, and uh, certification and accreditation system that we've supported uh, are helpful for small-scale producers. That's I hope very helpful. Really respect. great to get those that, those concrete examples. Um, I'm conscious of time, and um, I know we, we have uh, Ambassador Hassan has been able to join us. Hopefully, you've heard some of the the, the questions and the the, the discussion that's that, that's been going on since you've joined. Would you like to to, to make a, a a couple of uh, of comments based on that? Thank you very much, uh, dear moderator, and uh, good hello to everybody. I'm, I'm very happy to be able to join, even though it's the last minutes. Um, I, I want to maybe to and and I want to like for I have the opportunity to thank you uh, for for this opportunity. It's a really timely conversation. I want to um, maybe 
you know, address the issue of the imperative versus uh, squeeze that I heard. The, I hope that I, I got it correctly. And I want to say that uh, both, both uh, are, are uh, felt by the LDCs. The, the, the climate, change, climate change is an imperative uh, that is already that we ex already experience and addressing it is an imperative for, for LDCs. And I think um, uh, Mr. Roberts' um, answer um, sets, the, sets the tone for, for, for us. Uh, and I would, I would uh, uh, echo what, what he, he said. Uh, at the same time, the fact that we have to, uh, while we are not the one uh, contributing to, to the to major uh, climate crisis, um, we are the one who are uh, uh, um, at the uh, recipient end of of the negative consequences of uh, of the climate change. But at the same time, um, as I was explaining in my in my in my video, we are the one uh, feeling already the squeeze vis-a-vis -vis the measures and the policies that are being put into place, without taking into account what will be the the impact beforehand before putting them into place what is the impact uh, of the of the ldc's trading partners that 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 we are um, so I, I i think i i would i would i would say that both are equally uh, i would say uh, felt by us and indeed it it will it will um, force us um, when I say us, it's LDC and our trading uh, partners to really have uh, core core discussions on, and it's already happening in in the in the WTO. Uh, I hear a lot uh, the experts of the EU trying to explain, and I remember one of my questions uh, to a director uh, to a full team of EU was to understand now that they have decided. At this stage, the fact that they are consulting uh, LDC group, Africa group, different groupings when they are here in, in Geneva, how is it going to impact the, those measures, the CBAM and others, deforestation and, and all this? Uh, and the question was that basically it was very difficult for them uh, to agree among the 27 EU members. It took a lot of time. So that is not about changing the measures. Uh, but on a case by case, maybe to look at the implementation. Uh, basically, nothing can can change at this stage, and that's I think the worrying part uh, for us, where uh, the concerns has not been have not been taken um, into account beforehand, and now we are in 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 a, in a, in a fait accompli, uh, where we will have to deal not only with the negative impact of, of climate change, uh, but also the, the, the constraints that it's going to create for us um, to, to, to export and to continue trading so that we can, we can have trade still part of our economic uh, uh, recovery from setbacks of COVID-19 and uh, external uh, geopolitical shocks, the, the different crises, uh, that that we have uh, um, nowadays, so that we that will be in a position to recover uh, the 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 gain that we we made in terms of the SDGs, because I think now it's a, a, a very clear we are far from achieving 
um, SDGs by 20, 2030, but we, we lost almost 10 years of, 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 of gains uh, according to, to all the evidence that is available. So I think um, that's why I really find it um, um, very useful to have this conversation, but also maybe to, to uh, um, after the conversation, to make sure that within the context of EIF and Aid for Trade and so on, that climate change is not narrative uh, is not through the lens of the existing measures that have been introduced uh, and designed by our trading partners. Um, um, I would say in 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 inbuilt uh, uh, flow that we are we can already see, and that and that it will it will. Uh, those discussions we are having uh, for the LDCs, um, uh, assistance and, and, and uh, aid for trade and uh, EIF next step, we hope that the programs will try at least to mitigate the negative impact that we can already foresee. And I will stop there. Great, thank you very much, Ambassador. Really good to have that sort of set out very specifically around that sort of imperative versus squeeze gender. I'm very conscious of time, but I, in terms of the questions that we just had, I didn't give uh, Rolf uh, a chance to come in. So I would just like to give him the opportunity to, to respond to, to what he's heard. And then I will try to bring us to a close, perhaps just a minute or two after time. Thank you, Rolf. Okay, yeah, thank you, Laura. I'd just like to comment as well, following on what my predecessor said on this question of threats versus opportunities. And again, as my predecessors, I agree, it's both. So it's very important that LDCs are aware of what the threats or what the negative consequences of all these policies will be or are likely to be. And that's why it's important to analyze them, et cetera. And, uh, as, uh, and, uh, but also to put forward to the international community their concerns, et cetera. As the ambassador said, well, these regulations, they are already uh, either enacted or decided, but it's important to put forward their concerns for next uh, coming uh, regulations because uh, more are coming down the road. And so the, again, the call for special differential treatment for LDCs subsists and it's very important never to lose sight of this. But also, uh, I think there's a little bit like mitigation and adaptation. I mean, LDCs are not responsible, so I mean, mitigation is not so much their responsibility, yet they have to adapt. And in the case of adaptation, I think that that's where the opportunities arise. And that's uh, where I think that uh, some LDCs, they are starting to become very much aware of the opportunities. Then that uh, the question is how to support them in seizing these opportunities. So it's both, and it's very important to draw the attention to both the threats and the opportunities. Thank you. Thank you, Rolf. That's a very nice way to sort of summarise what we've, we've been talking about this morning. And I'd like to thank all of our panellists and participants for, I think, really giving us both the big picture on these issues and the, the, the way the, the regulations are going, the debate in the WTO, practical ways that countries are responding through support from the EIF and through WTO's aid for trade, but also Ambassador Hassan, the actual realities that you're facing on the ground, as you, as you said very rightly, LDCs are not responsible, 
climate change that are at the forefront of some of the biggest impact. So in two weeks' time, these things will be coming up again in uh, in Dubai at COP. And there's a follow-up event to this one for anybody who's going to be at COP. It's on the 3rd of December, and it's going to look at some of the similar themes, but it's really going to try to bring in more of the perspectives from the climate negotiators, because obviously we've got a good trade community here today, and hopefully we have some climate people in the audience. But the the event um, at uh, the WTO will uh, the WTO pavilion, sorry, um, in um, in Dubai will help to take these discussions forward. So thank you very much, everyone, for today, and uh, have a very enjoyable rest of your day, evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank, Thank you, Laura. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Bye bye. Yeah.